0: Let's stand and take our Bibles this morning, John chapter 2, the Gospel of John chapter 2. If your neighbor doesn't have a Bible, please be kind enough to share your Bible with them. Thank you for being here this morning. We're so excited that the Lord has led you to worship the Lord here. And we're praying for this service to be one that will, where God will stir our hearts and work in us in a very special way. Church members, we're having the Lord's Supper tonight. The Lord's Table after the preaching service this evening be here for that. And again, before the service and after the service, we're taking family and uh, individual portraits for those who are here for our series. We're starting off Family Portrait, and we know there will be a blessing to all of us. Uh, This evening. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's do this. We're going to read about 11 verses. I'm going to read the odd number of verses. I'd like to ask you to read the even number of verses. Can you do that? Amen. Amen. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Congregation, and both. and And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Congregation, Jesus saith unto her, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Congregation, and there were said there at the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Congregation, and he saith unto them, And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, congregation, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning set forth good wine, and when have well drunk, that they work, but they good wine This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee And manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. This morning we are looking at a very familiar passage of scripture. And uh, we're going to see some thoughts this morning as I get to the tail end of it, which is really the crux of the message, that really speaks to our heart about the truth that Jesus Christ gives you the best of the best. He never gives you leftovers. He never gives you junk. Jesus Christ gives us the best of the best. And some things we'll notice as we get into our scripture this morning. Uh, we notice in verse 9 that these water, they, had had, they, they ran out of wine and the ruler of the feast had tasted the water. And he made the statement that was kept the good wine until now. And verse 11, very important because sometimes this is overlooked. There are two things that are told to us in verse 11. First, That this was the beginning this was the very first miracle jesus performed in his ministry and secondly that jesus manifested forth his glory and there's so much here we pray this morning the short time we have that we'll be able to just let the lord speak to our hearts and my prayer for you this morning that you would experience in your life what this ruler of the feast experienced when he tasted that water i want you to taste that jesus christ gives the best of the best who those who come to him Father, this morning by faith we come to you. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And by faith we come to you because the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. And Father, though we know so little about faith this morning, many, many of our folks stepped out in faith and giving a special offering, a 1K offering that is no surprise to anyone who's been here for the pay down of the Berean Center. We want to pause and thank you for every property, every piece, every building on this property, for the parking lot, for the usage of the buildings and how they've been a blessing to us as a church And tonight, Lord, this morning as we're here in the service, we want to thank you especially for who you are, that you're the God of all creation. We want to thank you that you're God who's our Father. You're the Most High God. And thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, Lord, is the living water and living bread. We thank you he's the Good Shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. We thank you this morning that Christ is the resurrection the life. And he said, he that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. We thank you tonight that Jesus gives life that is abundant. We thank you that Jesus is the joy of living. We thank you that Jesus is the summation of all of God's love. Thank you this morning that, God, you love us. And I pray this, this hour as we go through John chapter 2 that you'll love your congregation through this message. We pray that you'll be the great shepherd who will lead us in the path. Where we should go, we pray this morning that God you'll come alongside of us as our helper, as the one who takes all of our cares as we lay them upon your shoulders. Lift our burdens, touch our hearts. We pray that the peace of God, which passes understanding, shall rule every heart and mind today. We pray this hour that Christ would be magnified and lifted up. We pray salvation would be crystal clear. We pray for hearts that will be tenderized in confessing and calling upon Jesus Christ, your Son, to be Savior. Thank you, Lord, as we come to this message today. There's a need that is here that every need will be covered by the Word of God. Bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're in a series that we began last week entitled Nothing But the Truth. And as far as I can tell right now, we'll continue this series at least through the end of the year. And Really, it's, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth about who Jesus is. And we're just trying to see some, some wonderful things that the Scriptures tell us about Him. And last week we saw from John chapter 1 that the truth is that you cannot live your life without Jesus Christ. Now truth, as we said last week, truth is defined as verifiable, accurate facts. Truth is what accurate information is. Truth is absolute. It is absolute integrity and honesty. Truth is what is genuine and can be completely trusted. And this morning, we're going to look at another truth about Jesus Christ. Today, I want us to look at this incredible miracle that happened at a marriage. We want to see how Jesus is the master of all things. We said this about truth, that the Bible emphasizes a lifestyle of truth. Psalm 51.6 says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. The Bible says that there can be a loss of truth. In Isaiah fifty nine fourteen, judgment is turned away backwards, and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen to the streets, and iniquity cannot enter. But we know this morning that the truth also sets us free. There's liberation found in the truth. Jesus Christ said, "And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." But most important as we study truth today, we're reminded that Jesus Christ is the summation and the absoluteness of all truth because of His own declaration. He said in John 14, 6, Jesus Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I'm going to tell you this morning unequivocally without any shadow of doubt as we look at the Scriptures, the Word of God, everything we're told in Scripture is the truth about Jesus Christ. You can trust him. You can believe in him. You can have faith in him. You can know that what Jesus did in those days, he still is doing now. You can trust him because he is the absolute of all truth. Notice in verse 11, we are told some things about this incident that occurred at Cana of Galilee. It's called the beginning of miracles. It centers itself on the early days of Jesus' ministry as he started off in his ministry. He was a virtual unknown. He was just one of the the many people that lived in the area are surrounding the Sea of Galilee and he's in an area that's about oh about, about 5 miles from where he where he was where he grew up the city of Nazareth he's in an area called Cana of Galilee very short distance he was about 10 to 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee he was a virtual unknown but it was this miracle that spread abroad the word about that that touched many people's lives and caused people to raise their eyebrows and open their eyes to see who he is and the Bible says in verse 11 that this was the the beginning of miracles. Now as we start our message, I want to say a few things about miracles. Miracles were a very integral part of Jesus' ministry. The Bible says that the Jews required a sign. Jews were skeptical. Jews were doubtful. Maybe there's some of us in this room, just by nature how you were raised, or maybe because you're an analytical person that you are very skeptical and doubtful. You need to have Facts given to you. And that's okay. That's fine. But the Bible shows us something here that a miracle is that something happens where there is no human intervention. A miracle is something that God does. And we see miracles that were a very integral part of Jesus' ministry. This is the first of many miracles he performed. A miracle, if you want to write this down, a miracle is a God performance. It is not a man performance, it is a God performance. It's all about God. A miracle is something that God does that is not possible with man. A miracle is God doing uh, what what to us seems impossible. And we're going to see many of these miracles. We're going to see Jesus changing the property of water and making it into wine. Now water just does not change into soda. Water does not change into juice. There is a process that has to occur. But God does something very miraculous at this wedding. Inside these receptacles, which we know as water pots, He transformed water into wine. Jesus changed the actual properties. We're going to see as we go through the study on nothing but the truth, there are just some things that only God can change. There's just some things only God Himself can, can enact. And we're going to see this morning this wonderful miracle and how this miracle has a wonderful, wonderful lesson for you and I, a takeaway that when we walk out these doors, we could say, I know now that I can seize and grasp on something that God wants me to have. Notice the man said in verse 10, he said, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine and when when men have well drunk, then that which is worse but thou has kept the good wine until now. He was saying this, that the best was, was reserved to last. He said the end is better than the beginning. He was saying the best, is the, the best was still to come. And Jesus Christ will demonstrate to you and I that he is the best of the best. He's better than the best. He is the best, of all best. And Jesus Christ, when He works in your life and mine, He always gives us and works in our life that which is best for us. Notice three things this morning about this passage of Scripture. First of all, you notice in verses 1 to 4, we see a grievous deficiency. The Bible says that in this this starting point, that Jesus was in the early days of his ministry. It starts off in verse 1 by saying, And on the third day, there was a marriage in Cain of Galilee. Now the third day is referred to the previous verses found in chapter 1. Jesus, in chapter 1, his ministry is introduced to us. In chapter 1, the deity of Christ is presented to us. John does not talk about his birth because the fact of the matter is he presents Jesus Christ as sovereign God. It starts off in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He presents without any equivocation that Jesus Christ is God, and as God, he is creator of the universe. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He said "God, God is the creator of all things. God God did God has always been. Jesus Christ has always been and always will be. God did not, no one created God. God was self-existent. And so he talks about the, the Jesus Christ coming to the world in verse 14 of chapter 1. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, as we transition to chapter 1 to 2, is now in the process of beginning his ministry. There are six men that we're, we're told of in chapter 1 that became uh, part of what we we know is the disciples of Jesus Christ. There were James, there was John, there was Andrew, there was Peter, there was Philip, and there's Nathaniel. We see six of these of, of twelve men that would ultimately become what would be called disciples. These six men in these early days are with Jesus here in Cana of Galilee. We find here that uh, the occurrence here is a marriage. Now notice in verses 1 to 2, we see a celebrated festivity. It says there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Later this week, we're we're privileged to have to to do a wedding for a a wonderful couple in our church that have been uh, seeing each other for a period of time. And they feel they knowing the leading of God and God's will in their life, Jacob and Lisa will be exchanging their vows. A marriage coming with each other this coming Friday and they'll be united in one in Jesus Christ. Marriage is a wonderful event. Marriage is a a festivity. We enjoy going to weddings. We enjoy being invited to weddings. Weddings are wonderful things. In fact, the very first ministry God created was the ministry of marriage. We find that in Genesis chapter 2. And of all things, we find here that Jesus was invited to this celebration. Now again, as I mentioned earlier, Cana of Galilee was about five miles where, uh, 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 south of where Jesus was, born, well, Jesus was raised in Nazareth and about 10 to 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus is there. His disciples are there. His mother was there. Now the wedding was just at the beginning stages. Now if you know anything about Jewish weddings, Jewish weddings were, were the consummation of the betrothal process. Now Jewish weddings would occur where a man and a woman would come together and they were betrothed. Now betrothal had all the responsibilities in marriage except for one thing—they would not live together. So when they, when this engagement, as we would call it in, in our culture, when this engagement happened, basically they were vested with all the responsibilities of marriage and they were committed to each other. But the man was to use that one year to prepare a home to bring his bride to. And so we find here that this groom—we don't know what his name is. We don't know what the bride's name is. We probably won't know till we get to eternity. But we find that this bridegroom has now consummated this. He's got his home ready in Cain of Galilee. He's gone to the bride's home and he's gone there with an entourage of, of people and with the bride and the bridesmaids together he's leading this entourage from her home over to the home that he's prepared for her there in Cain of Galilee. Consummating that, that, that process would be this big, great marriage supper that they're having. That's what we're seeing in chapter 2 here, this great marriage supper. It is kind of giving us an idea or foretaste of what is called in, in, in over there in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be a wonderful thing that as Christians we're going to look forward to because when the rapture comes, when Jesus takes us out of this world into heaven, we're going to be there and then shortly after that there will be this marriage Supper, the Lamb where all, where all of us who are saved will celebrate with Jesus for all of eternity, and you know, what a wonderful thing and the Bible says that time with Jesus is kind of a, kind of analogous to this marriage supper it's just a wonderful time of fellowship with the Lord and festivity and rejoicing and things of that nature. and we find here that this was a festival time. this was a joyous event, it was a celebrated event, and notice verse one and two, and the third day there was a marriage in Cain of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there in verse two, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Now what a wonderful thing that at the get-go here this couple, whoever they were, they invited Jesus into their marriage. May I encourage you this morning, make sure Jesus is in every area of your life. Amen? Make sure Jesus is in your home. Make sure Jesus is in your marriage. Make sure Jesus is in your career plans. Make sure Jesus is in everything you're doing. Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Let us remember that Jesus should be an integral part of every area of our life. Don't leave Jesus out of your marriage. Don't leave Jesus out of your career. Don't leave Jesus out of your decisions. Be like this couple. Jesus was called and brought into this event. We see a celebrated festivity. But notice in verse three, we see a serious failure. Now I started off by saying, in the main point, that we see a deficiency that occurred as Jesus is in on this first or second day. Most likely, it's probably about the second day of this marriage ceremony. Jesus is coming into. And by the way, when they had festivities like this, they would last at least for seven days. That's a long time. They would invite a lot of guests into these, these festivities. And generally speaking, perhaps all of the town of Cana of Galilee was invited. and Many of the other surrounding people were invited. I mean, Jesus and his mother Mary, which, who came from, from Nazareth, most likely a good number of people from Nazareth, and people kind of associated with the, the, the seaside community of Galilee. All of these folks were, were, were there, and people would be coming and going, and people would be staying, and this would last for seven days. And it was very important when they had a festivity like that, that they'd have a sufficient amount of food and beverage to last an entire duration of the wedding. And it was important that they did that, that people be fed, that people be cared for. Now, we have to understand something. When we get to verse 3, something very terrible happens. Mary is kind of close to the situation. She's very close to the the host. She's very close to the servants. She's close to the servants. And as she's talking with the servants, Jesus sees his mother and he goes to her and she comes to him in verse 3. And the Bible says when they wanted wine, they had had a shortage. They They had run out of wine to serve their guests. This says when they wanted wine, Mary then, the Bible says, "...the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine." This celebration during these first two days, now it becomes something that now was going to be a complete disaster. If word got out to all the guests, they have no wine. There was a depletion of wine. There was a serious problem. You see, if you ran out of food and you ran out of wine at a ceremony like this, two things would happen. Number one, it would be an incredible embarrassment to your family. Your family would be just... Uh, shamed and embarrassed for not having planned properly and being disrespectful of all the guests and people that came to have them come and you had nothing to serve them there would be embarrassment but worse than that the elders of the city could look at that situation as being careless negligence, and you would have a financial liability on top of that. I mean, it would be the equivalent that the city elders could sue you or basically impose a financial penalty. They would do something that would be compensatory punitive uh, damages against you for having uh, not not provided sufficiently. So obviously to run out of food and wine would be a very, very terrible thing. And anybody who had something like this, they'd want to make sure they had enough wine and enough food. And Mary comes, and you can imagine Mary coming to Jesus and the Bible says here over here in verse, verse 3, that she comes to him as the mother of Jesus. Not her name Mary, but she comes to him as the mother of Jesus. And she comes to him, and with this worried look, if you would, an anxious look of a mother, she just says to him very bluntly, they have no wine. And he knew what that man and she knew what that man, and the servants who were close by, they knew what that man. They had run out of wine. They were, they were already only two or three days into the ceremony, and they ran out of wine. They were in a very sit- serious situation. There was a failure that everyone was facing. A failure that could blow up in the face of the bride and the groom and the family of the bridegroom. What a wonderful and vivid picture this is, what happens in your life and mine. There are failures that we will face, just like this family. We'll be at a place where there'll be no more wine. There'll be depletion of things that we counted on. There'll be the day when we run out and we're depleted. Our health has changed, and we're facing medical challenges. Our career or job is in jeopardy, and possibly we lose our job. There's no more job. There's no more income. The good health is no more. The faculty of mind is no more. Our money runs out. We no more. We don't have money more. Our health and strength are depleted. She said, "There's no more wine. There's no." more of the things we've gotten used to. There's no more time. There's no more options. We think about the situation this week as our nation has been hit with, with three back-to-back tragedies. We have a shooting down in Thousand Oaks. And then in the same area, a wildfire ravaging its way through all those towns and many hundreds and thousands of acres being burned up. And then north of us here, just about a two-and-a-half, three-hour drive up outside of Chico, the area of paradise, a raging fire through there and devastating an entire city. not know about you, but for me, it's just it's kind of mind-boggling to think about an entire city wiped out by a fire. Homes de- devastated, businesses devastated, vehicles gone, precious memories and sentimental thoughts of people have all gone up in smoke and things of that nature. And if you followed anything in the news, of, as some people went back to some of those streets and drove down, and the airiness of abandoned cars and burned out cars, and what used to be a home no longer there. I mean, those people just a week before were celebrating, rejoicing in their homes and in their communities and their jobs and their quietness and all that. But now they're facing, like this family here, there was no more one there's no more home, there's no more memories, there's no more joy and now they've got to look forward to the next 12 to 24 months battling with insurance companies and homeowner insurance claims and everything else with that and where are they going to live and where are they going to do for clothing and how are they going to make do with all these things and all the things going on, I mean there's a time and place that all of us come to when we just come to this place where there's no more a serious failure Failures and everything's depleted, and there's no more. We find these grievous, grievous deficiencies. Hey, I'm going to tell you this morning let's thank God for, as we go into the Thanksgiving season, for all the goodness of God in our life. Amen. Amen. Let's thank God you've got good health today. Let's thank God we've got a church we can worship God in. And let's thank God for 19 years that he has been more than faithful to us in taking care of this church. And he has built his church. And he's provided in ways that we take for granted Sunday after Sunday. Let's be thankful for the people that we shake hands with every week. And when they're not here that week, we should be grieving in our heart what happened to them. Are they gone and what's going on? Let's be thankful today that Jesus is our Savior and that heaven's our home. And let's thank God today that our sins are forgiven. And thanks God, let's thank God that as we approach the Thanksgiving holiday, day that we have another thanksgiving to celebrate before god but i will tell you the time will come for some of us when there will be no more no more time no more fellowship no more good health they faced a situation where mary came to them and said there's no more do you notice secondly something else this morning we see not only the grievous failure but would you notice the glorious dynamic As we get to verses 4 through 11, we find the focus now on the miracle that Jesus would perform. And while we look at the failure, I'm thankful only one or two verses talked about the failure. The remainder of the verses talk about what our God does in those failures. And i want to remind you today, sometimes we can get so focused on the failure, we give more time and energy to the failure than we give time and energy to what God's going to do for us in that failure. Amen? And so we notice this glorious dynamic here. We see the celebrations going on. Most of the people at that celebration have no idea they've run out of wine. Primarily the core group of people knew that they'd run out of wine. The servants knew. Possibly the bridegroom knew. We know that that there are people that knew that they'd run out. But uh, it hadn't spread out entirely to the entire group there. And we're told in verse 11 that this would be the beginning of miracles that Jesus would perform. And he would manifest his glory. Now we need to understand something this morning. When Jesus does a miracle in the New Testament. It would always be for the purpose of manifesting His glory. Now let's understand the glory. The glory is the essence of God. The glory is who God is. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The glory is God's holiness. The glory is His moral perfection. The glory is that God is creator. That God never changes. That God is wonderful. And God is deserving of our worship. It says here that He would manifest His glory. Heaven came down and glory would fill the souls and the lives of people at this instant Here, Glory would come down. Let me remind you this morning, when you got saved, glory came into your life. When your sins were forgiven, given. Glory came into your life. When Jesus came to this marriage, he came there with a purpose. He is all knowing and he's all powerful and he's all sufficient. And in that essence there, Jesus' glory to be manifested there. And you have to remember when this miracle occurred, not everybody knew at once but as time got along and everyone sampled and tasted that water, it got out that that water was turned into wine. Not everybody knew about it at that moment in time but everybody would as we start reading through the Gospel of John there. And we see here that Jesus would demonstrate an In this matter, that he is all God. He would demonstrate that he was God in control of a failure. He was God in control of a disaster. He was God in control of these situations. We look at these fires... We look at these shootings and their tragedies and yet in the midst of all these things we know as Christians according to Romans 8:28 there is somehow some way some good that's going to come out of this. There's somehow some way there's some good that God's going to manifest. It might be someone will come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. It might be that someone's life will be touched through the gospel of Jesus Christ in a special way. It might be that Christians will be used of God to give comfort and help to those who are suffering. Whatever it may be there's always some good that will come out of the situation. And I want you to see this morning the glorious dynamic of how the power of God is at work through this circumstance and overcoming a failure. First of all, would you notice how God does that? Notice in verses 3 and 4 we see the plea. This glory, dynamic, or power would be represented through a sequence of events. First of all, we see a plea or a prayer. Notice verse 3 and 4. Mary comes to Jesus. She tells him they have no wine. And then notice the Bible says that uh, Jesus responds to her. Now, the first thing we want to see is that Mary makes a simple request. She comes to him, and she uh, uh, she says to him they have no wine. It's her way of basically saying, Jesus, they need your help. She's basically saying, God, Jesus, I know you're God, and I know you can do something there. And she's basically doing the equivalent of what we do, what we talked about in our adult growth groups this morning, about coming to God in prayer, about praying and bringing our needs before God. Let me encourage you this morning, if you weren't in the adult growth groups, or if you were, just to reinforce this, to remind ourselves that when problems come and anxieties come, the Bible tells us in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Take your problem to God at the beginning and not the end. Make sure that every problem you have, that the plan A is God. There is no plan B. Amen. A lot of times the plan A is we go to sector sources and other counsel for help. There ought to be in our attitude, our heart, as saved, born-again people that plan A is we bring everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to God. Saying, God, I'm not sure where this is all going to go. I'm not sure how this is all going to unfold. But I know one thing. God, you've got my best interests in mind. Thank you for trusting me with that problem. Thank you for trusting me with this trial. Thank you for trusting me with this difficulty. Let us see how God's going to work. And so she makes a simple request. She says they have no one. She says, they have a problem. They need your help. And I just want to remind you this morning, if you're going through a problem, You've got a worry. You've got anxiety. You're going through a difficulty. Just come to Jesus Christ simply. And say, God, I've got a problem. I need your help right now in my life. And you see here that Mary makes a simple request. But notice something else in verse 4 that's kind of interesting. I just want to put a plug in here for this. Mary also receives a stinging rebuke. Because as she makes this request of Jesus, notice in verse 3, she didn't come to him as Mary, as Mary, a servant of God. and She did not come to him as Mary, as Mary, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. She came to him as Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. Now, Mary came to him. Asking him in the authority of a mother, I need you to do something here. And you notice Jesus' is response to her in verse four, he refutes any idea that Mary is on the same platform as Jesus. In other words, he's refuting in verse four that Mary, that Mary is not equal to God. I said that Mary's not equal to God. Amen. He's saying here that Mary was not a God. He was saying here as he responds to her in this in verse four. He's saying, Mary, you've come to me as my mother, but I want you to know that there is no such thing as a mother of God. There's no such thing as the mother of God. He said, I want you to understand something, Mary, that you're, you're my mother, I, that you, you gave birth to me, but I'm still God. I'm still Jesus. Nothing changed that. I was God incarnate in your womb. You didn't bring me about. The Holy Spirit of God conceived me in the womb. You have to remember that what happened in the womb of Mary was a miracle of God. And so Mary, she, she was used to seeing Jesus do things in there. So she came as a mother. The mother Jesus said to him that, that they had no wine. And he had to respond to her. He gave her a singing, but yet loving rebuke. First of all, he said, woman. Now that wasn't a way in which that, that, that was being disrespectful. That was just how they addressed each other in those days. He was calling respectfully someone who was, who was of, a, of a mature of a mature nature. But he said this, what have I to do with thee? He says, don't you understand? You came to me in the wrong way. You've come to me in thinking that you have dominion over me. And I remind you this morning that Mary, no matter how you read it and what you see there, Mary never has dominion over Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ always has dominion over her. And there's no such thing as a, as a, as a, as a virgin Mary who's equal to God. No, if you read and study the scriptures very carefully, Mary was a sinner just like you and me. And Mary, she calls God or Jesus if you would in, in Luke chapter 1, God, her Savior, she recognized she was a sinner who needed to be saved just like you and me. And so she gives a singing rebuke her, and she realizes she made a mistake, that she came to him as his mother. And he says, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. You're asking me to do everything that you know I'm going to do right here. She said, number one, you don't tell God what to do. You've got to trust God for what's going to happen here. And he was helping Mary to develop in her faith so that she'd understand that God God was in control of the situation, and Jesus is Lord. And right there at that moment in time, at the beginning of his ministry, Mary humbly and obediently and lovingly accepted the fact, she said, now I get it. I, 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 yes, I'm his mother that I brought him into the world. that But but he was conceived in me by the Holy Spirit of God. And God is his father. And really, it's at this moment in time, you have to understand that under the ministry of Jesus Christ, I am to submit myself to him. And Mary, at that moment in time, recognized that she was needy just like you and me. She came to him and said, Jesus, I understand what's going on. And so Jesus, as he approaches, says, listen, you just have to follow me. You have to understand I know what I'm doing. And I'm going to take care of all this. And you just see here from this point on, that in a firm way, he lets her know that I've got this situation under control, man. And so we see the plea, but notice the participants. There was no need for discussion after verse 4. And by the way, just a thought for you to me. When God makes his statements very clear, there's no need for discussion. Amen. We don't negotiate with God. Neither does God negotiate with us. And notice the participants here. Mary, it says in verse 5, his mother saith to the servants. Now let me say this at the beginning. As we read through the miracles of the Bible, all the New Testament, God doesn't need us, but God loves us. And we have to understand something, that God chooses to use participants many times to do what glorifies Him. And it's kind of like the servant of Abraham who said, I being in the way... The Lord sent me. And we have to understand that you and I are just in the way for God to to use us. And we see these participants. We see these servants. And there's multiple lessons here. First of all, would you notice in verse 5, these servants were not Mary's servants. They were the servants of the bridegroom. There were servants of that household, and as we read a little bit further on, read about these water pots. There were six water pots, and those six water pots at least maybe required at least two men to carry them, and it maybe one could carry them. Be very, very strong. I doubt that he could because these these water pots would be very, very heavy once they were filled up. So there were at least six to twelve servants, and minimum six, most likely twelve, maybe more servants there. And she turns to these servants because along the way there, before Jesus came, these servants had huddled up and they were murmuring among themselves, "What are we going to do? We've run out of wine, and there's going to be a great embarrassment here in our." And our master the bridegroom is going to be fined by the city if they find out. And if he gets fined, the punitive damages will be so great that we're going to be without a job. And They're a little bit anxious about this situation of how the embarrassment will affect their family and their reputation and financially the damages will be done to them. So they're all worried and concerned about the situation there. And Mary turns to these servants she starts talking to them. And they realize that these men who were there, who did not know Jesus except from a distance, that at that moment of time these unknown servants would have a, a major part in a miracle that God's going to do. Let me tell this morning, you never know, as you try to serve God with a willing heart, an obedient nature, and a willingness, humility to follow God, you never know what God does to somebody who's willing and humble to be used of God, how God can use you and me for his glory there. And here, if you would, Jesus is training six of his disciples. You've got James and John, and you've got Peter and Andrew, and you've got Nathaniel and Philip, and Nathaniel is characterized by a man who is very skeptical, and these six men are just getting training under the way, and they're, they're there. They don't say a word during this whole incident, but they're observing some things. And I think Jesus took these servants as one thing to teach his servants that he was raising up how to serve God. He wanted them to see what true servanthood should be about. Let me tell you this morning, Jesus Christ is still in the business of looking for servants, servants who love him, servants who are willing, servants who are obedient, servants that are humble, servants that will say, here am I, Lord, use me. And so we see these participants here to be a major part of this great miracle that God would do through these, through, uh, uh, in this situation, this marriage of Cain of Galilee. So we see a plea and we see the participants. But notice in verse 5, we see a precept. Now I'm giving you all these precursors that, that kind of help us understand what God's going to do here. And Mary turns these servants, she knew what Jesus was going to do. And as a friend of the family as a fellow servant to other fellow servants because Jesus had helped her to realize her role and place her in the previous verses. His mother saith to the servants, listen very carefully, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now first of all, Nike came out with that slogan, do it. Hey, Jesus originated, it's right here, amen? amen. I, think, I think there was a copyright infringement against the word of God, amen? But that's a whole different story, amen? I mean, it doesn't get any easier than that. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Why do he say that? Because she, what did she say? Well, I think she knew that whatever he would tell them, human rationale comes into place. And sometimes when God does things, it doesn't make sense to us. But the truth of the matter is, God has more sense than us. And what make, doesn't make sense to us, we just have to trust God. It's very sensible. And when God tells us to do something, what might not make sense to us, God already has thought this matter out. He already knows what the end result is. He already knows what He wants to achieve from it. He just says we need to follow Him. And here's the essence. Here's why. Here's why we we, we turmoil in our hearts, and anxiety in our souls, and worrying our faith, and we we're distrustful and skeptical about things. The, the, the frankness of the matter is, we just don't trust God. The frankness of the matter is we, we think God doesn't make sense, but the reality is God makes a lot of sense in what he does there. And here's what I'm saying this morning. When she turned to these servants who were perplexed and anxious and worried about what was going to happen to their jobs and what was going to happen to the bridegroom, she just basically said to them in a very loving way, whatever he tells you, just do it. Don't worry about it. Just do what he tells you to do. Hey, that's like the pastor getting up. I could, I could, I could give, you, I can give you two-minute sermons every Sunday. If everybody, all of us were obedient, I could just get up every Sunday and says, whatever he says do you, do it. And I could say amen, and you'd go home and have your barbecue. Amen? Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Amen. It's hard for us to obey. If you take your Bibles, go with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. In 2 Kings 5, we see a very good Old Testament example of this. In 2 Kings 5, we have a story about this man, his name is Naaman. He was captain of the Syrian band. The Bible describes him as a great man, well-esteemed. But in verse 1 of 2 Kings 5, it says, but he was a leper. And leprosy, wherever we read that in the Bible, leprosy is a vivid picture of sin. Leprosy in those days was, had no cure. And leprosy, when you were contracted leprosy, there was only one result, and that was a fatality. You would die of the leprosy. Your limbs would fall apart, and your nerves would lose their, their feelings, and it was a very terrible, terrible death to, to experience her. And this man had leprosy, and he had a little maid that said, oh, would to God that my master could go to the prophet of Israel, because he will certainly take care of your, your situation. And word got to him because he was desperate, because there was no doctor that could help him, and there was no medicine they could give him, and there was no incantation that which could give him during that time because they were pagan people, those Syrians. And so he listened to this maid of Israel who with a great conviction, her heart, realized she was in the right place at the right time. We don't know her name, but in eternity we'll find out who she is. She gave a word of cheer to this man. She said, listen, there's a prophet there in Israel. He could tell you what you could do about your problem. So he goes to, a, to he goes to this prophet and he's thinking like he does on a secular level. He's thinking, well, whoever this man is, he must be able to work some magic here. And so I'm going to bring all these, this clothing, this food. And the Bible tells us he brought much silver and he brought two changes of raiment and he brought all this clothing thing. He was planning to lavish this man with Great reward for helping to give him healing and his health back. By the way, he learned something there. Money can't buy your health. He learned money can't buy your happiness. And by the way, he learned money can't buy you heaven. Amen. And so this man is over here, and he comes to him. And, um, and, and Elijah, here's Elisha. Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. Elisha's kind of going like this. Oh, that's a no-brainer. God will take care of this. And God did Here's what he told him. He says in verse 10, notice 2 Kings 5, he says Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in Jordan seven times and thy flesh shall come again to thee and thou shalt be clean. Here's what he said. Listen, the Jordan River is over there, very close by. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the Jordan River, dip yourself under that water seven times. And he says the seventh time you come up, your flesh shall be clean. Now, all he, he was telling him what, what he had to do. He just gave him the word from God, what he had to do. But notice Naaman's attitude in verse 11. But Naaman was wroth and he went away and he said, behold, I thought, that's our problem. We have a different plan in mind. He already had a solution in mind. He said, Behold, I thought. Hey, obeying God means get your thoughts out of him. And just trust God and follow him. Amen. Whatsoever he saved, then do you do it. But this man said he thought. That's our problem a lot of times. We're trying to think for God. God's already thought it out. We don't need to think for God. Amen he says, Behold, I thought. And he says, He will surely come to me and Sam and call in the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. He was thinking in his mindset, Well, certainly this prophet, if he's so great, if he's so powerful and what this maid says, he'll come and he'll look at this place and he'll just say a word and, and a lightning bolt will come down and he'll strike me on the head and this leprosy will go away. That's not what he said. He said, I want you to go to the river of, 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 of Jordan. And he says, I want you to go inside that water and dip yourself seven times and you're going to come up clean. And so he's mad and he goes away angry. He's filled In fact, he's beyond mad he's filled with wrath and the bible says here that his servants his servants are uh, uh, see watch what's going on and notices what he says out loud in verse 12 he talks about the rivers of damascus he talks about abana and Farpar, rivers of damascus are they not better than all the waters of israel and he's equating things that 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 were sensible to him that, that that he thought this doesn't make sense he says why do you want me to go to the river jordan jordan's dirty Jordan's it's murky. You have to understand how Jordan flows. The waters as a snow caps, the waters will melt from the from the uh the mountaintops, there would be rushing waters and they would pick up all the dirt and silt along the way. And the waters that they rushed, have you ever seen any, any pictures or and, and videos of the Jordan River when it's, when it's mighty and it's rushing? It's a very murky, very, if you would, kind of a dirty type of river there. And he's thinking, why would I want to go there? When I got over in Damascus, I've got two rivers there. I've got Abana and Farpar that are cleaner. We drink from those waters. They're good waters. I'd rather go to Abana and Farpar. I'd rather go there. He said, are they not better? And he said, may I not wash them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Notice verse 13. His servants came to him. And again, notice how servants get involved. And his servants came near, and they spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saved thee, watch and be clean? You know, these men had a lot of sense. They just trusted the word of the prophet more, more than they trusted the word of Naaman. And they said, look, if, if he wanted to do some great thing, he would, he would have done it. He just told you simply, all you got to do is go down to the river Jordan, dip yourself up and down seven times, and you're going to be clean. And listen, he, he reluctantly did that, but he went there, and he, he dipped himself down under, and dipped himself up, dipped himself under, and pulled himself up, dipped himself under. He did it for seven and the bible says his flesh appeared just like the flesh of a little baby that was a miracle the leper was cleansed the leper was made whole but all it boiled down to just obey what the lord says hey whatsoever he unto them to do, do it listen this miracle we're going to see over here in john chapter 2 could not have happened if those servants were disobedient to the command of the lord jesus christ Oh, many times we want God to do something for us, but there's this rebellion, this disobedience, that keep it from doing what God wants it to do. Obedience to the Lord is always a required prerequisite for his power to work. You're going through some deep waters right now difficult situation. You feel like your prayer is not being answered. You need to step back and ask yourself this question. Is there disobedience in my life? Am I keeping the commandments of God? Are you doing like Mary said to them, whatsoever he saith to you to do it, are you doing it? Are you doing what God wants you to do? We see the participants. We see the plea. What you notice in verse 6, the pots. Now our attention, I want you to imagine someone with a camcorder giving us a visual what's going on here at this wedding festival. The camcorder has been, the video has been on Mary's conversation with Jesus. Mary's conversation now to the servants. And then the recorder has taken this camera, like our live stream people are doing right now. And he shifts it over to the front entrance of the house. The front entrance of this property were these six massive water pots. And look what happens here in verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone. These were, these were not made out of ceramic. These were water pots of stone. They were cut out of stone. They were heavy. And the Bible says they were large. In fact, the capacity of these, these water pots were what the Bible describes in verse 6, two to three firkin's. Now, firkin, depending on how you measure it, could be anywhere in our, in terms of how we, we measure weight and so forth there, could be anywhere from six to ten gallons in capacity, if you can imagine that. And I just want you to imagine for just a minute, imagine going to Costco and buying, buying, uh, buying a, you know, where I guess it's two gallons of milk in a box there and carrying two of those, that's four gallons, and that could be pretty heavy walking around Costco carrying that. I want you to imagine with me this huge, huge stonework, this huge receptacle there at the front entrance of this property that could contain anywhere from. A minimum of 18 to 27, maybe 30 gallons of of liquid there. And the Bible pulls our attention here. Notice in verse 6, it says that there were there, uh, there there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Now, let's understand what's going on here. The camcorder, the recorder, is shifted over to these, 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 these pots here because Jesus has his participants. Jesus has received and said he'll answer the prayer. There's been a precept that's been given, and now our focus is on these water pots. And the water pots would be an instrumental part of how God is going to do a great miracle that would blow everyone's mind because no one is thinking about these pots, and nobody's thinking about these wa- the water that's in there. And as we look at these pots, we have to think about their significance. Those water pots, when you came into that property after walking on the dusty roads and traveling five miles from Nazareth to Cana, or having tra- travel 10 to 15 miles from the shoreline of this, this miracle we performed And watch this. Jesus had to have the servants. And Jesus had to have obedience. But Jesus also had to have certain vessels. Do you understand something this morning? Before God's ever going to work in your life and mine, God's got to have clean vessels. God's got to have clean vessels. Now I'm of the belief. I can't prove it, but I'm of the belief that these vessels, the water had been used up. And if there was any water, it was just a small residue that was at the bottom. The Bible tells us that in a great house, there are vessels of gold, and of silver, and of wood, and of earth, and some of honor, some of dishonor. And it says this in 2 Timothy 2.20, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, Sanctified and meat for the Master's use. And we have to remind ourselves that our lives are vessels. Jesus, the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4 6, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And the picture we're trying to getting an eyeball on as the the recorder is being turned into this passage of Scripture, is we see these vessels that would be used of the Lord. And I'm just saying this morning, let's have a servant's heart, but let's be clean vessels that God can use. Let's be willing vessels that He can use. Let's be available vessels that the Lord can use there. And so the focus is on these pots, and the focus is on the plea, and the focus is on these participants, and the focus is on the priesthood. But you notice, here's where the big deal comes up. Look at verses 7 and 9. The focus is on the performance. In verse eight and nine, Jesus tells the servants. Verse eight he says, "Okay, fill the water pots with water." Now he didn't tell them how much, but he wanted to see what kind of hearts they had. And the Bible describes in verse, verse seven they fill them up to the brim. Now, good servants anticipate and say, "You know what?" I'm going to do exactly what I'm told, and I'm just going to assume he wants it to the top. I'm going to fill it to the top. What if one of those servants said, well, I'm just going to fill it halfway because I don't know how much he needs. Then he's inserting his feelings into it and not obeying what the what the master wanted to do. Services, that's just saying, okay, I'll do it exactly as you want me to do, Lord. And so they filled it up to the pot. And then he tells them after they fill it to the pot, and you can imagine, let's say, a minimum of two men carrying those pots. They have them there. They're filled to the brim. They're all at the top. They're probably overflowing. Probably say so put it down, water flows out of it, is pot jumping out. And notice what happens in verse 8. He says, draw out now. Take some water out and bear it to the governors of the feast. And they bear it. Listen, you've got to be filled to the brim. You've got to be overflowing for God to draw something out. If you don't have anything inside you, there's nothing to draw out. And he says, listen, what, what, what do you have here is these, these pots. And he says, I want you to draw it out. Now take it to the governor of the feast. And he says, here, here's what you're going to do. You've gotten the water in there. Now just take some water out. I want you to take it over to the governor of the feast. Now these servants are just in their minds. Their minds are running very quickly. And these servants now have not said a thing, and they're not going to say a thing. They're just obeying what they're told to do, but in their minds, they're knowing, okay, we had no wine. He told us to take these pots, and he said, fill them up to the brim, and we're drawing the water out of, the, out of there. We're taking it there. They, they're thinking in their mind, hey, here, here's the water we're drawing out. Something's happened to that water. Something's going on there that we're not sure what happened. Something's happening here that's never happened before and probably never happened again, but something's going to happen here, and we can't wait to see what's going to happen. And so these men, they draw the water out. Notice verse 9. They give the water to the ruler. The, of the feast. Notice, what you notice verse 9, please? And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine. Did you underline that? The water that he tasted was made wine. Now that ruler of the feast had no idea there was a shortage. He had no idea there was a failure. All he knew was that someone wanted him to sample this wine. And he says here, as he did so, I want you to understand this. It says, when he tasted the water that was made wine, it knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and he saith unto him, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. Wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. Let's look very carefully, because i got to end this sermon. Watch what happens. This man drinks this water that was turned into wine, and he just assumes this wine that's being given him. And he tastes it, and there's something scintill- uh, scintillating, and something sparkling, and something refreshing, as if it was freshly squeezed off the vine. And he drinks this, and his eyes are open, and his taste buds go uh, burst alive with flavors because he's thinking, wow, this is great stuff. It's like it's like apple cider that's been popped out of a bottle this isn't poured out. It's scintillating, and it's and it's, 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 and it's it's just, I feel it, and the taste of the apple and the and the acidity and all of those things there. He's tasting that, and he says, look, every man in the beginning gives his best at the beginning and his worst at the end, but you've saved the best until last. He's saying, you've given us the best of the best. We're halfway through this marriage at this marriage church. Ceremony, and you're giving us the best when most people give their best at the beginning. He says, man, there's still more to come. Watch what Jesus is doing there behind the scenes. Jesus, all he did was speak the word. He said, I want you to take those water pots and fill them up to the brim. He says, I want you to draw from the water pot and give it to the governor of the feast. They give it out. To and these, these these men, these servants, they're just the participants along the way. But watch what happens. A performance happens. A miracle occurs. Jesus changed the water to wine. Jesus did the, he made, he made possible the impossible. Jesus changed. That which was natural by supernatural, Jesus changed the property of that water into wine. He did something that only Jesus could do. He turned the ordinary into extraordinary. It was something that could not be explained by man. The Bible says that the ruler of the feast did not know what was going on, but the servants knew. The servants knew that the moment that that water went into that pot, that that water was transferred immediately by Jesus Christ. The property was changed. Listen, there's never been a time. You do it later on. I can take this water here and I can pour it. I can pour it into a pitcher container. I promise, it's not going to turn into wine. It's not. It's not going to turn to grape juice. It's not going to turn to Coca-Cola. It's not going to turn to anything you want to drink. It's not going to turn to any of that because water is water. The only way the water can be turned to wine, somebody supernatural has to do it. And i already declared to you this morning that somebody was Jesus Christ this morning. The wonderful truth in this, write this down. Jesus can change what you and I cannot change. He can take our failures and make them successes. He can take our problems and give us solutions. He can take our oppositions and make them opportunities. He can take a broken marriage and make it a blessed marriage. He can take a hurting heart and give us happiness. He can take your bitterness and make it sweet. He can take your darkness and give you light. He can take a sinner and you can be safe today. He can take a sinner and you can be safe today. Ten verses. Ten verses. The camcorder, the video has been on all these interactions here. Inside of those containers was water that was poured, drawn from a well. His property was changed. It was the beginning of miracles. What if any miracle was? Because it's a reminder to us, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ didn't come into the world to reform. Jesus Christ came into the world to redeem us from our sins. And so as we close this morning, I want you to see the driving thought that, we, that concludes and draws us all together. I want you to go back with me to verse 9. And we've seen the grievous deficiency, the glorious dynamic, the power of God at work. But I want you to notice in verse 9, please don't miss this. I want you to see a gratifying discovery. And in verse 9 it says, When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water Just stop there and I want you to underline those thoughts a man tasted the water but it wasn't water that he tasted the water was changed the water was transformed he tasted and he realized in his own testimonial in verse 10 he said that Jesus Christ what he drank was the best of the best Jesus Christ never gives us less than best. Jesus Christ never gives us leftovers. Jesus Christ never gives us junk. Jesus Christ gives us the best. He said, well, what's the driving point? Here's the driving point. The Bible tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. If so be that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Over there in Psalms 34, it tells us in verse 7 or 8, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And here's what I want you to close this morning. What this man tasted changed his palate. But more than changed his palate, it changed his future and it changed his life. He tasted and he saw that this water, that there was something that he got that was better. Can I tell you this morning, the greatest discovery about the Christian life is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good tasting and seeing that he's the living water. Look at he tasted the water. Two things you find in the scriptures in the Gospel of John. Water is a picture of how Jesus betrays himself. He is living water. He tells the woman at the well, he that drinketh of this water shall never thirst again. Later on in John chapter 7, he speaks about, he tells him about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and when you believe and trust Jesus Christ the Savior, he makes a statement that out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And he was well, not speaking about himself, the Bible says there, but by its own commentary he was speaking about the Holy Spirit of God and here's what we want to end with this morning the greatest discovery you can have about the miraculous working of God in your life is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good tasting experiencing the greatness of the Christian life and tasting experience experiencing all that God wants to do for your life I want to tell you this morning if you're not saved I want you to taste and see and experience the blessing of forgiveness and taste and see being set free from your sins and tasting and seeing that you have eternal life oh some of us need to go out further and we need to taste and see answers to prayer and we need to taste and see the joy of the Lord and we need to taste and see how he takes our bitterness and makes it blessed and we need to taste and see that he can take a hungry soul and make it filled I just say this morning we need to taste and to see that the Lord is good in your life and mine David said, O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked at him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts him. Hey, this morning, do do, do several things for yourself. We're done. Number one, would you taste the Lord? Would you taste and see that he can deliver you from your secret fears? David came to him. His fears overwhelmed him. But David came to the place where later on he said in verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good for your secret fears. But taste and see that the Lord is good for your spiritual food. Get in the Bible. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter said it this way, We should desire the sincere milk of the word of God. The Bible tells us that we should taste and see that his word can feed our soul. Taste and see that the Lord is good in the stretch of your faith. Notice in Psalms 34, 8, he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. This morning, more than anything else, would you taste and see the Lord is good for your forgiveness and for your future. I call upon you this morning, this man, experience what God did. And notice notices we go back to John chapter 2. This was the beginning of miracles. Now, as we fast forward and get to John chapter 4, word spread through all of the Galilean communities about this miracle that Jesus did. It got as far up to Capernaum. We know about that because a man of Capernaum came down to see him later on in John chapter 4. Word spread out because Jesus manifested his glory. He didn't have to talk about it. People talked about what he did there. And I'm saying this morning, now 2,000 years later, we get to talk about H. Jesus, who has the same ability to work in your life As he did in the lives of those people do you have a need you're the place where there's no more no more hope no more money no more light more important you're not sure about where you're going to spend eternity let jesus come in let jesus change the unchangeable do the impossible this morning, you're not sure you're saved. The most important thing to get out of this, if you're not sure you're saved, if you know within your heart, you're not sure you're going to heaven, why don't you taste this morning and see that the Lord is able to save you from your sins. He can take a sinner and make you saint. He can take you out of darkness and give you light. God is light. God is love. And God is life. Receive Jesus today. Taste and see. That man tasted the water that was made wine. He said, you've kept the best for the last. And this morning, Jesus Christ gives us the best of the best. Don't reject it. Don't turn it away. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, today, thank you for this passage of Scripture that speaks so wonderfully to us about the power of God. Your ability to change. Your ability that you know all things. You're all powerful. And Lord, around the auditorium, there's hurting hearts. Some who are the place where they feel like there's no more. They have no more energy. They have no more strength. Some in their health, they feel like they have no more time. And for many, perhaps, who feel like there's no more hope, I pray today they would look to Jesus, who turned that water into wine, and realize that when we get Jesus into our lives and we put him first, he gives us the best of the best,